0: This morning, uh, I'm going to read for you uh, from Isaiah 53, the first six verses, and uh, then we'll move into Romans 8. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the from uh, in Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Would you pray with me? Father, as we enter into this time of exploring your word, I agree with Chrissy's prayer that the ears would be anointed and the hearts would be anointed as well. Uh, soften our hearts. Help us to see things that we're supposed to see. Help us to understand things that may be new to us. And things that aren't new, Lord, I pray that that they would still go deep within us and continue to transform our lives. Uh, be in this word, may this word be your word and your word only. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. So it was young Johnny's uh, first day in the, uh, in the retail business. Uh, he was just a young guy, only 16 years old, so he's just getting, getting started. New job, first job, pretty exciting stuff. And so Johnny wanted to make a good impression on his boss. Never had a boss before. Want to make a good impression. Uh, Mr. Jones. Yes, my boy said the store owner. Uh, you see, since it's my first day, I, I, I really want to do a good job for you. I, I want to make a good impression. And, 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 and could you show me some important things that uh, I should remember as I do my job? You know, I don't want to make any mistakes, Mr. Jones. Uh, well, Mr. Jones was pretty impressed. You know, this young, young man wanted to know. Well, well, certainly, Johnny. Uh, let me tell you the thing that I learned in church this week. Wisdom and integrity are essential to life. And, and this includes working in the retail business. Well, Johnny thought about that a little bit. Huh, wow, wisdom and integrity, huh? Well, hey, hey Mr. Jones, Mr. Jones, wh- what do you mean by integrity? By integrity, I mean promise a customer something. You have to keep that promise. Even if that means we lose money. Well, now Johnny was impressed. I mean, he's heard many times, you know, about the customer being right, especially in retail, customer, customer being right. And, and now his first boss was putting it into action. Uh, Mr. Jones, Mr. Jones. Uh, what, Johnny? Mr. Jones replied. Uh, then, then what do you mean by wisdom? Well, that's easy, Johnny. Wisdom is not making any bad promises. Okay. Anyway, uh, today we... Boy, that really went like, whew, like that didn't even get off the ground. I mean, that, you know, sometimes, you know, when you start off, you kind of make a joke. You know, sometimes it actually kind of, does you hear a chuckle? I mean, today it was like looking at me, like, what are you doing? Okay. All right. Well, anyway, uh, it introduces the whole topic of wisdom. See, today we're speaking about wisdom. Um, Here we go. Charles Simeon, Simeon, who was an English clergyman, said this in the 18th century: to know God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, is the highest principle and perfection of man. This attainment, infinitely above all others, constitutes true wisdom. Uh, I don't think you can say it better. I think that's I mean, I think that's it right there. Uh, to know God, to know Jesus Christ, uh, it's the highest. It's the perfection. It's the thing that we long for. It's the thing that we pursue. Um, it's the very nature of wisdom. So uh, Proverbs 3, 13-18 uh, through 18 goes like this. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, And nothing you can desire can compare with her. Long life. What a promise, right? What a promise. Long life is in her right hand. And in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are the ways of pleasantness. And all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Um, It's an incredible statement. Uh, it's, It's quite... Uh, recognition that that wisdom is the highest thing uh and 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 the question i have for you today just as we begin this message is you know do you believe that do you actually believe that you see if you believe that and if i believe that then that means that we are going to pursue wisdom daily um and and so how are you spending your time how are you doing with that are you doing that are you spending time daily pursuing wisdom um are you on your knees daily? Are you praying daily for wisdom, that God would give you insight into your life, and most, and even more so, insight into how to understand Jesus, how to understand God, this pursuit of God being the, the most important thing that we can do with our lives. How are you doing with that? Um, now, that being said, and that question that I just gave you for you to just ponder about in your own life, uh, that... Uh, that being said, I've got to ask this question also: Are we pursuing the right Jesus? I mean, come on, this is we're getting close to Easter, right? And I don't know about you, but I, every year getting around this time, you know, if I go to the grocery store, right, and I'm going through the, the you know the, through the uh, cashier's aisle there, I look to the right and there's candy bars, okay, and I'm getting pretty good at resisting those things. You know, that's says just Justin's with me, and that's a problem. Okay? Uh, but on the left side, there's always these like magazines and so forth, and what do they have on them this time of year? All kinds of stuff about Easter Jesus. I mean, it's there, right? You've seen them, right? A lot of times like there's something about Jesus, you know? Uh, but are they presenting the right Jesus? And of course, on television, there's always and it seems like every year there's a new documentary of some sort on Jesus, right? The question is, are we pursuing the right Jesus? And really, I'm going to presume here that the right Jesus, I hope this is true in your mind and in your life, I hope you believe this, that the right Jesus is the Jesus that is presented to us in Scripture. And so that's really the question today. Are we really pursuing wisdom, which means pursuing Jesus, and understanding his ministry as presented to us in the Bible? Are we doing that? Um, And the pursuit of looking for the ministry or trying to understand the ministry of Jesus Christ is an old pursuit. It's nothing new. Uh, it's it's been going on for for 2,000 years. Uh, if you think about this, John the Baptist, John the Baptist, was looking for uh, understanding, an understanding of pursuing Jesus. So we have this this these in Matthew chapter 11. Uh, one of my favorite passages in Matthew's gospel. Um, wow, what a Matthew pa- 11 and 12. Boy, go home, study it just. It's a great unit, and so forth. But anyway, we have this uh, with this statement. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, "Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another?" What a question, right? An amazing thing. Here's John the Baptist, this hero of the faith, and when he's you know when he's in prison, he, he's beginning to have doubts. He's beginning to wonder. Uh, should we really be looking for you? Are you really the Christ? Are you the one, or should we looking for? Should we be looking for another? Um, and Jesus answered them, "Go and tell John what you hear and see: the blind receive their sight, and the lame walk; lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me." What an answer! It's like uh, John, you're asking me if I am the one who is to come. Why don't you pursue that question? Let me just show you or tell you what I'm doing. You'd see if that matches up with your understanding of the Messiah. And so he tells them, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news, preached to them. John, do you think that that is what the Messiah came to do? Of course, John's gonna gonna answer yes to that in his heart, right? He's soon gonna be killed, but uh, but that's that's the that's this is a very old pursuit. How do we understand the nature of Jesus' ministry? Jesus comes to us as a sage, as a miracle worker, and a riddler. One who tells riddles, one who gives puzzles. And I have people all the time ask me, you know, why does Jesus do that? Why doesn't Jesus just speak plainly? Just tell us exactly what's going on? Like we had that discussion school class this morning, essentially over over the third day, you know, uh, why three days? How is that? that, that Those three days, or were they supposed to be literal? Of course, we know that they were now, but the disciples themselves had to wonder, even if they could hear it, three days, what is that, 3,000 years? I mean, because Jesus presented so many riddles and so many puzzles, and he spoke in parables all the time, so people ask me all the time, hey, why doesn't Jesus just tell us plainly, just straightforward, just give it to us? right and here's the reason why he speaks this way it's because he has us on a journey a, a journey that pursues wisdom a journey that pursues his ministry a journey that pursues understanding Jesus Christ in his ministry and in our lives and what's he doing in this world that's the reason why he speaks speaks so, so in such a difficult manner sometimes that's why we have so many parables because Jesus wants you to like actually, you know what, stop, concentrate, pray, ask him to give you insight. He wants a relationship with you, and, and that partly means getting your thinking cap on, and even every bit as important as that, is asking Lord the Lord to give you the Spirit of God to help you understand, because the Spirit of God is our teacher, right? He wants us pursuing him. He wants us after that. That's why I opened up this, this message with this idea of pursuing. If you're not able to pursue it, you're not going to find it. It's just not going to happen. Okay. Um, little Johnny pursued a little wisdom, didn't he? And he figured figured out, hey, okay, uh, some some uh, some new things. Anyway, we're supposed to go way past that. All right. So so uh, that leads us today to Romans eight three. Um, let's go ahead and read. Let's go ahead and read that verse right now. I put it up on the screen. Romans eight one through uh, three. I'll, I'll give it to you. Therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Now, I hope that you notice, you know, this, of course, I put it in blue up there on the screen. This idea of sending his own son. God sent his son. I hope that just like there should be all kinds of echoes of various uh, scripture passages in the New Testament that God sent his son. The, the one that what we most know, of course, is John 16. For God so loved the world that he gave or sent, right? It's the idea. That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, God sent his son. Yet, who is this son? Who is he? Um, now, we could approach this question from all kinds of ways. You know, we, we, I, notice I started the, um, uh, this morning by reading from Isaiah 53. It tells us something about Jesus, doesn't it? Right? Church has long interpreted that as statements about Jesus. We could go to Philippians 2. We could go to Colossians 1, 15 through 20 and talk about Jesus as the creator and this kind of thing. There's so a lot of things we could go, go for or go to in the New Testament about who Jesus is as well as the Old Testament, right? There's a lot of things we can go to in the Bible to talk about this. But this morning, I wanted to take a few moments and, and make mention of some church history. Um, church history is very helpful for us. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about Arius. Now, Arius was a priest in Alexandria, Egypt, and um, this is many, many years ago. Uh, this is during the early fourth century. And Arius, uh, in reference to Jesus, talking about Jesus in a work called *The Thalia*, which means the banquet, um, he influenced Christians all over the Roman Empire. Okay, and this is what he said about Jesus. This is this was the famous thing had the the most influence from Arius. He said this. He said, there was a time when Christ was not. In other words, what he said was that Jesus Christ was a created being. Now, I'm going to tell you that that doesn't hold water, biblically speaking. Um, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Jesus says, creator is is really, really important passage because it helps us, understand, helps us to see what the early church was dealing with and what they were going through and how this, this issue of who is Jesus was central to them, right? Remember, remember, when, remember when, uh, when Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, he says, hey, hey uh, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They say, well, some say you're uh, John the Baptist, some Elijah, one of the prophets. And he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up and says, I know who you are. You're the son of the living God, the Christ, right? But still, Peter and of course Paul had to deal with this, this issue on a on a larger level over time. And the church struggled with who is this Jesus? We know that he came, he died for us. Let's explore what that means. And he rose from the dead, and that's that gives us life, but it increases our faith, of course, and transforms our faith into a living, dynamic faith, but. So who is this Jesus? And so you know, Paul eventually you know, writes this stuff about Jesus' as creator in Colossians 1, 15-20 uh, and so forth. Um, but the early church had to continue to wrestle with this and see this. And in the early 4th century, Arius, who was a priest, said, hey, there was a time when Christ was not. And the church wrestled with that and pushed back on that in a big way. And there were many people who followed Arius. They were known as Arians. It was Arians. It's a huge controversy, one of the biggest controversies in the history of the church. And eventually, the Arians disappeared. Okay, but but they but there's a long story behind them, uh, especially the northern uh, um, northern Germanic tribes uh, bought into Arianism, and they were coming into uh, Rome, and there were all these issues regarding what the church was going to believe and so forth. And technically speaking, don't have any Arians left today. But there are a few groups, uh, few groups that believe that Jesus is a created being. Uh, some of the, the groups that we're not in fellowship with, uh, like the Jehovah Witnesses and so forth, uh, that believe that Jesus is a created being, this kind of thing. But this is what the church said at the Council of Nicaea. This is really important stuff. They gave us the Nicene or Nicene Creed, depending on how you want to pronounce that. And this is what the creed says. It, sa- it says that Jesus is actually divine. Jesus is God. And I want you to understand that this church, being a Nazarene church, is more than a Nazarene church. Because the Nazarene church is more than a Nazarene denomination. We are Christians, which means that we go all the way back to the early centuries. You see? We're not just a Nazarene church. We are part of the church throughout the world. We're bigger than one denomination, as important as our denominational uh, roots are. I'm not trying to discount those things. But the reality is, is that we're the church, and so the Nicene Creed is a part of who we are. And look what it says: "Believe in one God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God. What a statement! Right? The, the council saying that Jesus." was or is divine. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. It goes on. I'm going to read through this. Who for us men, uh, for for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and on the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. Okay. So, um, this creed was so important for establishing Christ's divinity. And I hope that you believe that. You see, I really do. I hope you believe that Jesus Christ is God. This is the reason why we're a Trinitarian church. We believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one usios, as it says in the Greek, which means being one substance, one essence. The three persons, okay? That's something that we are. And if you struggle with that, well, I understand that. Okay, Arius pushed this idea of Jesus as a created being because he struggled with this idea of monotheism. He didn't want to get messed up. But the church pushed back and said, actually, the truth is, is that we have one God, three persons, but one substance, okay? That's that's giving you some really important basic theology here. Because we're asking the question, who is Jesus? Who is the Son, you see? Okay, so that's Christ's divinity. But the question becomes also, how about Christ's humanity? How about Christ's humanity? See, this creed doesn't really answer that. And this, this, and as you, as, um, as I, uh, well, the reality is, is that as the as the church continued through its history, continued on its journey, the question of Christ's humanity became forefront after the uh, Aryan controversy. This became forefront. And so, let me ask you this: Let me ask you this, this question. Okay, what does it mean for Christ to be human? What do you think? Is Jesus 20% human and 80% divine? Uh, is he 50% human and 50% divine? Maybe he's 80% human and 20% divine. Uh, maybe it's something else. I don't, uh, let, let, let's see. Let's see. We have this important verse, really important verse, right here in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What does it mean for Jesus to flesh? Well, quite frankly, in John's Gospel, flesh is the human body. Right? Paul uses it a little differently in, in, in the Romans. But in John's Gospel, it's pretty clear that the flesh is the human body, which means that Jesus became like you and like me. He had a body. In fact, the truth is, he still has one. But that's another sermon. Um, So I want you to think about that. Just keep this question in mind. What does it mean for Jesus to be human? 50 50? 80 20? What is it? What is it? Okay, so so look at this primary text this morning that we have Romans 8 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son. We talked about that a little bit, by sending his own son. In the likeness, and there's the Greek word, okay, omoi o mati, likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Okay, so we're going to focus on this likeness of sinful flesh. Um, what is this about? What's this idea of likeness of sinful flesh? Um, Well, let me suggest to you two things. First, clearly, he's likeness in appearance, right? Um, Isaiah 53 tells us that he came not as someone who was beautiful, not as someone that we desired to look upon. He was actually a pretty normal, most likely, kind of a pretty normal looking person, right, for a Jewish man. But he didn't come in terms of like he didn't come. I look at my dogs all the time and I go, well, Jesus didn't come for you, but he loves you. Right? He didn't come in the he does. He loves my dogs. Okay? He does didn't come in the form of a dog. Right? He didn't come in the form of a cat. He came as a human being. So there's a sense in which clearly, obviously, one of the things that means that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh is that he came to us. Like, he came he's like us in appearance. He looks like us, he took on our flesh. But there is a second thing. Okay. He came to us, and this is where the emphasis is here, he came to us in the likeness of sinful flesh. And there's and I put down Greek there. Not that that's that's critical here. Okay. So what is sinful flesh? Well, a few things we know, okay? We'll start here with Adam. Uh, it's the flesh that came from Adam. Uh, Adam was made, and Eve were made in the garden, right? And they were they were good. They were they were made. They were very good, in fact. Uh, but they that they fell. But look at what this says. Look at what this says in Genesis 2:15. This is sort of a warning that God gives Adam. It Says uh, the Lord God took Adam uh, took the man and put uh, put him in the the Garden of Eden and worked to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may uh, surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And of course, we know the story, right? They do eat of it, and what happens? Death and suffering are introduced into humanity. Uh, now we're looking at the sinful flesh in terms of A couple of things one is we know that that uh, human beings die we also know that human beings suffer and so when we ask the question what does it mean for jesus to to uh look like uh the sinful flesh one of the things that we understand is that jesus suffered he suffered uh in a number of ways as well as the fact that he was getting older and he would die right likeness of sinful flesh But also, um, he also came as it looked, at least in appearance, it looked as though he was the man of Romans 7. I've I've told you a lot about Romans 7. um, But the Romans 7 man is not the man that you and I want to be. Jesus looked like everyone else in his relationship to God, at least if you didn't take a close look. He looked like the person who would Well, quite frankly, um, he looked like the person who would struggle with sin. But you know what? He never sinned. He looked like the person who would be tempted to sin and fall to temptation to sin, but he never fell to temptation to sin. He looked like the man of Romans 7 who fell all the time. Take a look at this. Take a look look, look at this. These are some of the things that we know about the Romans 7 uh, man. Romans 7, man is incapable of doing God's will, but Jesus did God's will. He, that Romans 7, man was the person who is hostile to God because he just can't do God's will, and he has a hostility toward God because he's in the flesh, and yet Jesus loved God and did his will in every respect. Um, one thing that we haven't talked about in terms of Romans 7 is that there's, this, there's also this per, pervasive idea that, uh, that to be in the flesh is to seek glory and honor in yourself. Human okay. pride. Uh, this is part of the fleshly world, right? We want everything to be for us. And yet, Jesus didn't seek his own glor- glory and honor. In fact, in John 7, Jesus says this, the one who speaks of his own authority seeks his own glory. That's not what he does. He speaks on the authority of the Father. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So, what we have here is this person that looks like sinful flesh, but doesn't have sinful flesh. And you know what this means? Ultimately, it means that Jesus is the man of perfection, he's the man of perfection. And that's super important, super important, um, because God has purposed him to be our representative. We need a representative. We need someone who can go to the Father before us and represent us, particularly since we've um, come to him in our sin. And so I ask this question again. Is Jesus 20% human, 80% God, 50% human, 50% God? You know what the answer is? And many of you know the answer to this, but the biblical view, and certainly the view of the, of the, uh, of the church councils, is that Jesus is 100% God, but he's 100% human. Now, Some of you are saying, well, I've learned all this before and so forth, but I'm, if you have, it's worth repeating. And it's important that we get our theology grounded. Now, I'm going to give you what the Council of Chalcedon said in 451. Uh, Chalcedon is uh, like Nicaea, is close to Constantinople, uh, close to the modern Istanbul. Um, Anyway, so this was during the heart of the Byzantine Empire, so forth. 451. Look at what the Council says. This is a little bit long, but I think we can deal with it. We then, following the holy fathers, all. With one consent: teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. There it is, 100 percent, 100 percent. Truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, substantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the God. And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence. Not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only, begotten, uh, yeah, and only begotten, God of the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the holy fathers is handed down to us. Um, So I gave you two creeds today. It's not like us very often to uh, focus on the creeds, but I gave you two creeds today because it's foundational stuff. Jesus is fully human and Jesus is fully divine. Uh, I wrote this down and I I thought to myself, you know, as in my my notes, I thought this is, this is so like important in my mind and hopefully in the Lord's mind that I want to just go ahead and read you exactly what I wrote here on my page. This is what I wrote. I said the fully human part and our identity with Christ in his humanity is super important because when we come into his sphere, I'm always talking about spheres, right? It's an important concept. When we come into his sphere, we are being in Christ. And notice, that's a very important, you know, um, that's very, we call that Pauline language. It's the language of Paul. Paul uses it all the time. Says in Christ when we are being in Christ, think of spheres. We're being in Christ, then our identity as his brothers and sisters, our identity as his family members, is fully established. Now he represents us on the cross and he represents us before the Father in his prayer life. Notice how critical that is that when he dies for us, he dies. For us, we are in his family. He truly is our representative so that sin can be dealt with for all of us. But also, this has to do with his prayer life because Jesus is the the great high priest. And so as he prays to the Father, so he takes our prayers and he communes with us, our prayers, and brings them to the Father because he is us in a sense. He represents us fully. Our identity is in him. And this is why Paul can say in the first verse of Romans 8, because we are fully identified with Jesus as Christians, you see. We're not the Romans 7 man. We're the Romans 8 man and woman, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Implication, man and and woman, let's say, in Romans 7 is not in Christ Jesus, but now in Romans 8, we are in Christ Jesus, fully represented in him. Okay? But we're not through. We're not through. And you're thinking to yourself, wow, this is a lot to take in. Well, it might be. Okay, But we have one more thing. Verse 3 again. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. What does it mean that Jesus condemns sin in the flesh? What does that mean? Well, um, if a building is condemned, what happens to it? If we condemn a building, right? To say that, that the Kalama comes over to this Kalama Nazarene church, looks at the building, is not impressed with it, whatever, and as to condemn it. What would happen? We wouldn't be able to meet here, would it? It would lose its usefulness, right? What does it mean for Jesus to condemn sin in the flesh. You know what it means? It means that sin's been exposed. That's really critical. Sin is shown to be sin. By the way, that's why the law was given. Remember what Paul says in, uh, earlier in Romans? That the law was given in order to expose sin, in order that sin may be shown to be sin. And through the commandment becomes simple beyond measure. To condemn sin in the flesh it means that sin has been exposed. Okay? Look at John 3.19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love darkness. They didn't want to be exposed. People love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. You know what sin wants to do? Sin wants to hide. Uh, that's, that, that's what sin does, right? It comes along, you know, you get deceived and you commit sin, you're in sin. And then what does sin say to you? Essentially the, essentially the devil, right? What does the sin say to you? It says, you don't want to confess that. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> you're going to confess that sin? Are you kidding? You confess that sin, everyone's going to despise you. They're going to reject you. You're not going to be loved anymore. No, no. Keep up the facade. Look like a Christian. Don't be one. You can't be one because you're not one. You're just, a, you're just kind of this hypocrite. But we're not going to tell anyone you're a hypocrite. We're just going to keep you going so that you can feel okay. But if you expose yourself, you're going to be rejected. Um, I'm going to say it. The power of the church is in confession. Are you confessing your sins? Have you confessed your sins to a brother or sister who you trust in the Lord? If you don't confess your sins to a brother or sister in Christ who you trust, don't confess it to everyone. Please don't come up here and confess all your sins before the church. That's not that's not the idea, right? But if we can conf- but if you confess your sins, if we confess our sins, the enemy has lost his power, right? To condemn sin in the flesh means that sin has been exposed. It has come into the light. Um, you see, this also, of course, speaks to the cross itself. Because on the cross, the gravity and the nature of sin is exposed. You think about that time when Jesus walked up the Via Della Rosa and came to Calvary. He was a bloody mess. And they took him and they took those nails and they put it in one hand and they put it in the other hand. (laughs) He had a crown of thorns. His hand was bleeding. His back looked like hamburger meat because he'd been whipped all those times. And they put him up on that cross And you can imagine that someone with just a little bit of insight from the New Testament, which they didn't have, by the way, but we can do this. You can imagine, just imagine if you, just for a moment with that person before the cross who begins to understand and see these things. He, he probably would say something like this. "Look, Look, look, you can see the truth about sin. It results in death. Do you see the man, his head pierced with a crown? His blood flows from his side. His hands and feet are pierced. Oh, the gravity of sin. The deceitful sin. It's been exposed and I'm beginning to understand this. And then another man, his friend, would say, friend, friend, I see sin for what it truly is. It's truly condemned. It's been exposed. Truly it has lost its power. But I see something else. I see something else. Even greater than all that. I see this. I see the depth of God's love. A love that gives and gives and gives. A love that bleeds and dies for you and for me. And so the power of sin is condemned. Sin's taken away. And the love of God is only beginning. And so there's the cross. Do you know the love of God is only beginning in your life, in my life? Because it's all about love. And that love rests on the truth that Jesus is fully human and fully divine so that we can begin to understand him and begin to understand what wisdom is about. Would you pray with me? Father, These things are foundational. You came in the likeness of sinful flesh. You weren't sinful. But Jesus, you came in the likeness of sinful flesh so that we could be in your sphere and you could represent us on the cross. And God the Father could say, Oh, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive. There may be someone here this morning who needs that forgiveness. Maybe I asked Lord that he or she would confess that sin, would expose sin, so that the power of the devil would be taken away. But you came to expose it. So you came in your humanity that we would be able to be represented by you. And you came in your divinity so that we could begin to see who God really is. I ask, Lord, that you would bless this church, that this church would know your great and unending love. Because our future is about the love of God, and the sin in our flesh is about our past. Sanctify us. Bring us into a whole new way of living, full of victory, full of love, full of grace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit Amen, Amen.